on today's episode. We look at the 1950 season and two clubs feel the effect of new coaching appointments. St Kilda have their best start since 1907, while North Melbourne, with a brand new identity, pick up where they left off last season. The team from Sleepy Hollow, Geelong, begin to wake up and make a late run for September action. We discuss the Brisbane Carnival and Essendon continuing to dominate despite losing five of their premiership heroes. All this and more coming up after our song. It's the history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazmaz To hear what they all have to say Welcome to the Kick to Kick podcast, the Australian Rules Football History podcast to take a deep dive into the history of the league. Uh, we have no qualifications to bring this show to you other than a thirst for knowledge, a desire to relive the past, especially Melbourne and Essendon supporters, and lots of books. Um, my name is Tim. Uh, on my top of my Zoom screen, I've got the Kazman. Hi, everybody. Uh, below him in the uh, the Brady Bunch corners, we've got Charlie. Oh, hello. So who, who am I then? I'm, I'm not Alice. She's right in the middle. Maybe I'm Bobby. You're Jan. You're Jan. I'm Jan. Oh, <laughs> and, and to the right of Charlie on my Zoom screen, I've got Anna. Hello, everybody. You're Marsha. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only one I know. <laughs> it's the only one I know, too. We are here to speak about the 1950 season. Guys, can you believe we're in the 50s now? I know. We're living in the 50s. Welcome. Oh, youth future. Yeah, I know. It is, it is the future. As Melbourne supporters, you three must be very excited. Yeah, it's a good time. Well, we're getting toward a good time. Yeah. Yes, indeedy. And Kaz, maybe you especially so, because we know we know Bulldog Murray's coming up pretty soon. Oh, yes. Um, I, I don't know how long exactly, but it, it's just inching closer and closer. <laughs> He's definitely the, the original goat. You've had to you've had to wait such a long time since we started this, Kaz. Interesting. Um, so, uh, hello listeners in Portugal, South Africa, and oh. the US state of Utah. Thank you. Let's, Keep listening. We're just, we're just spreading across the world. We're spreading the good vibes across the world. Hopefully there's a lot more um, in a few years' time when Melbourne and uh, Essendon memberships just rise through the roof and each of those clubs has, you know, 250,000 members. I don't know why, and it's because of us. <laughs> <laughs> Because we really sell them on uh, on those teams. Don't we just? No. Well, we try to be unbiased as much as possible. They're past successes, maybe. Uh, they, they know that, that Melbourne is so successful. So, um, you know, they'll, they might get a little bit of culture shock when they, yeah. when they you know, start following <laughs> us. In the good times just keep on rolling. Exactly. They do. Believe it. <laughs> um, so, Charlie, let's get to some history to start. Now, I've got a, a good song you probably, most of you should know. Uh, it's called I've Got a Lovely Bunch of Coconuts by oh, Freddie yes. Martin and Sammy Big in our family, this song. Little was... Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> number one number one in Australia for three weeks in April of that year. So I've Got a Lovely Bunch of Coconuts is kind of what today's equivalent of Justin Bieber, right? Yeah. I it's guess. These novelty songs, so, yeah. they just keep coming up as number one. Nonsense yeah. words. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, let's hear some things that happened in 1950. Uh, so in 1950, the Korean War is continuing. 
uh, but so we're not focusing too much on that. But let's talk about a few other things here. On the 5th of January, the, now this is going to be fun for me to say, the Sverdlovsk plane crash happened, which is the Aeroflot flight Lysanov Li-2. Uh, it crashed in a snowstorm and all 19 aboard were killed, including almost the entire national ice hockey team of the Soviet Air Force, mm -hmm. uh, which was 11 players as well as a team doctor and a monsieur. So there you go. Mm. Not Conair. No, not Conair. Not Conair. Different. And not even the uh, the soccer team. That was later on as well. That was in the 60s, wasn't it? It was in the 90s. Which one? Yeah. In the snowstorm? Yeah, that was the one. Yeah, that. Oh, God, who knows? There's been, there's been a few of those stories. It's crazy that I keep happening. I've put here this event, although I'm yeah. not sure it happened in January. It didn't yeah. have a date on it. I'm going off today's dates for the Australian Open. Uh, in the men's signal singles, Frank Sedgman defeated Ken McGregor 6364-4661 to win the big Sedge. Um, on the 23rd of January, the Messet passed a resolution that stated Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. For those who don't know, the Neset is the name of the Israeli parliament. There you go. Uh, on the 26th of January, uh, India promulgated its constitution and formed a republic. And Rahendra Prasad was sworn in as the first president of, of India. Mm. You mentioned Gandhi a little bit in a couple of other episodes. Yes, well, he's just passed away. Ah, ah. On the 26th of January, well, passed away, he was assassinated. Yep. <laughs> on the 26th of January, no, on the 31st of January, Harry S. Truman ordered the development of the hydrogen bomb in response to the detonation of the Soviet Union's first atomic bomb in 1949. So that arms race is just keeping on growing. And on the 8th of February in Australia, petrol rationing ends uh, nearly 10 years after it was in introduced during World War II. And people were back to having petrol fights like like before the war. Just like Zoolander. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. Um, on the 27th of April, apartheid began in South Africa, which formally segregated the races. A dark time. Mm. Uh, on the 9th of May, Robert Truman presented a proposal for the creation of a pan-European organisation. Uh, so this Schumann Declaration was considered the beginning of the creation of what is now the European Union, or the EU. Yeah. Mm. On the 13th of May, the very first race of the inaugural Formula One World Championship was held at Silverstone in England. I don't know who won the first race, unfortunately. Um, around the same time, myxomatosis was introduced to Australia in an attempt to control <laughs> the escalating rabbit population. <laughs> Hmm. On the 26th of July, uh, Australia yeah. announced that it would send troops to fight in the Korean War, and the first Australian forces landed on the 17th of September. At the beginning of November, we had Comic Court winning the Melbourne Cup. Uh, and on uh, just at the end of the year, we had the boat Margaret Rintoul taking line honours and Nerida winning on handicap in the Sydney to Hobart yacht race. And in a little bit of other sporting news for us, Melbourneian Sid Patterson won the World Amateur Pursuit Cycling title in Belgium. That go Melbourneian. Going, yeah. Go Sid, I say. Sid from Melb. Sid from Melb's, exactly. Mm -hmm. He was cycling before it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> Pre-Lycra. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, would you like to hear about some people who were born in 1950? 
please. I know Kaz would. Yes, yeah, some absolutely. People <laughs> so uh, on February 13th, we had Peter Gabriel, the uh, rock musician, they say. Yes. Book of love. On the 26th of Feb, uh, the, sorry, the 16th of Feb, we had Malcolm Blight. Bloody. Bloody. On the 18th of February, John Hughes, the director, producer, and writer of basically every seminal teen movie in the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, Ferris Bueller, 16 Candles, Pretty in oh, Pink, yes. Breakfast Club. Everything that was great about the 80s was, was John Hughes, basically. Mm. On the 26th of February, Helen Clark, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, the you know, former Prime Minister of New Zealand. On the 11th of March, we had uh, Sam Kekovich, the Australian rules player and uh, lamb aficionado. <laughs> um, and on the same day, Bobby McFerrin oh. uh, of Don't Worry, Be Happy. Yeah, fine. Oh. On the 26th of March, Martin Short, the Canadian-born comedian, or as some, a lot of people know him, Jiminy mm-hmm. Glick. Uh, <laughs> and on the same day, we had Alan Silvestri, the composer, who composed the theme music to Back to the Future, has done a lot of the Marvel movies recently. Very, very ah. famous composer. Hmm. Cool. On the 10th of April, Mick Dodson was born, who is an, <laughs> an Indigenous leader. On the 28th of April, Day Leno, the talk show host. On the 29th of April, Philip Noyce, the Australian film director. Nice. And these are all people who turned 70 this year. Yeah. Like, they're not that old. It's crazy. No. Uh, on the 2nd of May, one of my favourites, right. uh, American professional wrestler Moondog Rex <laughs> was born. He, he'd, he'd win the name award, wouldn't he, Kaz? <laughs> I don't even know him. I just love the name. I thought it was great. On the 11th of May, we've got Gary Foley, who's another Indigenous activist and one of the, uh, one of the original people who yeah. set up the, the tent embassy in Canberra. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the 13th of May, Stevie Wonder. Mm. On the 22nd of May, Bernie Taupin, the English lyricist, famously collaborating oh, with Elton John. On the 5th of July, Huey Lewis. Oh, classic. So many Power 80s. Above. Another yeah. Back to the Future classic. Yeah. <laughs> All linking together here. Uh, on the 18th of July, we had Sir Richard Branson, the uh, British entrepreneur. On the 11th of August, Steve Wozniak, uh, who was the co-founder of Apple. Uh, he was the sort of engineer behind it. Yes. On the 1st of September, Phil McGraw, or as we all know him, Dr. Phil. <laughs> <laughs> on the 11th of September, the flying carpet himself, Brucey e. Dool, was born. Flying doormat. A flying doormat. That's right. Yeah, sorry. On the 21st of September, Bill Murray. I mean, what else can be said about the great man? Yes. On the 27th of September, John Marsden, the Australian author. On the 20th of October, Tom Petty, the rock singer. And on the 31st of October, John Candy, the Canadian comedian and actor. Gone too soon, John Candy. Died in 1994. Very sad. Mm. Should still be around with us. Mm. Wonderful, Charlie. So there you go. What a group! Wow, big year, huge year. I mean, that's that's a that's a tiny sample of the people that were born that year. <laughs> well, look, we, we don't have time to go through all of them now, Charlie. That's I think that's a different. Can you imagine? Podcast, that's a whole it? other podcast. 
<laughs> just listing people that were born each year. Imagine that. You wouldn't be able to say them fast enough. <laughs> oh, God. Right. All right, um, so let's get stuck into the 1950s season. Please. Kick it off. Which is a another big season. So some league news. Because it's football season, and that's the reason it's the time of the year that we love. Um, now, Charlie, last year, you, in 1949, you told us it was one of the wettest uh, years in Melbourne. Yes. This year, 1950, is the driest Melbourne in 64 years. What? What is going on? Do you reckon they were talking about climate change? Probably, and El Nino. El Nino. Um, this might help explain why uh, why the Bombers were so uh, good as well, because we talked about how their, sure. their dry weather play was very yes. good. Yeah, yes. Flick on the grass there. Uh, now, in the siren was introduced to replace bells at all league grounds after a successful trial at the MCG in '49. Mm. Um, the league also introduced the father-son rule for the first time in 1950. Really? With clubs being able to recruit players whose fathers had played 50 games or more for one club, um, there oh. wouldn't be any recruits in 1950. We'd have to wait. We'll have to wait till next episode. Um, so there's a Carlton player, but the second player under father-son was Ron Barassi Jr. Aye, there you go. Mm-hmm. And uh, anything of why um, they decided to bring that rule in? Obviously, I mean, obviously, they, they somebody thought of it. It was a good idea. Yeah, good question, Kaz. I didn't, hmm. I didn't look into so the reasons why yeah, they have played. And <laughs> yeah, I'm they, on the sure. that, that the name just conjures up, you know, so much yeah. love for your team. So, because you would think that they bring it in for a certain player, right? Like, you you know, these things often happen because you want something to happen or someone's lobbying for it behind the scenes. But the fact it's come in and there has, there's no one picked up for that under that rule in this first year says that that's probably not the case here, right? So maybe, that's an interesting one. Maybe there are a few rocket 16-year-olds yeah. coming up. Ah, that's it. They're, they're looking ahead a couple of years. Exactly. Mm, who they want to get uh, their They're prize. oiling the pan. <laughs> 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 Makes sense. Um, now, in 2001, the AFL introduced an award called the Jock McHale Medal, and Charlie and I spoke with Glenn McFarlane a little bit about this, um, but that was backdated to 1950, uh, that being the first year Mc- John McHale, uh, Jock McHale had yeah. retired. Um, so they've honoured, they've, they presented to the, to the Premiership coach the Jock McHale Medal for every grand final since 1950. Oh, lovely. So when, so when did they, like, I know we talked about this, but when did they actually introduce it? 2001. In 2001. Yeah, okay. Mm. So they just gave it to yeah, everyone they, before then. Retrospectively. Backdated, yeah, nice. Handed it to everyone, yeah. Mm. Yep. Um, mm. got his name on something. Yeah. The VFL would revert to the traditional 18-round season in 1950 um, after having, you know, 20 and 19 over the last few years to try and make up a bit of ground for the lost years in the war and the lost crowds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, also, 1950, we have the publication of C.C. Mullins Football Australian Almanac. Ah, yes, the great C.C. Mullins. In which... <laughs> this is a great time to be alive. In which he publishes the champion of the colony list. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the greatest list ever made. Which we, which we know... <laughs> which we know he pretty much fabricated or, like, read some reports <laughs> and made up himself. I mean, realistically, it's just like he basically just wikipedia it, right? Like, you just you can do that still now. It's great. I'm all about it. <laughs> yeah, so, pretty much. Say things with confidence and people will believe yeah. that's how I live my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And he bluffed the AFL as well. The AFL, I think, I think it's still official or recognised so. in some way by the well, AFL. Well, we want to uphold him. We, we don't want to, we don't want to let them know and bring him down. Absolutely. <laughs> Kaz, we got, uh, we got two umpires debuting in 1950 as well. Yes, we do. There is Alan Nash and Doug Lamb. Excellent. Um, 1950 was also another, another state... Yes. 1950 was also another state carnival. Uh, hosted this time in Brisbane, Ooh, Queensland. Interesting times mm. at the moment. Which, uh, you know, we've got the grand got the grand mm-hmm. final there this year. Yes, it was uh, incredibly <laughs> wet there, but they they did play some night games, and this was the first carnival with nine teams. So it was the the biggest carnival they'd ever had. Um, so they had two sections. They had section A, which was the VFL, South Australia, Western Australia, Tasmania, and the VFA. Ah. Okay. So we know the VFA have been welcomed back. They've got rid of the flick pass. Yep. Um, that schism has been and so that, so section, repaired but, for now. Yeah. And in Section B, we've got New South Wales, Queensland, Canberra, and the Australian Amateurs. Okay. Hmm. Like a team, a team made up of the best amateur players from around the country, which I thought was quite a cool concept. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm, it sounds like a team I'd like to be involved in. Yeah. Um, so the VFL won Section A and the Amateurs won Section B. Wow. Yes. Go Young Guns. A win for the little man. And did, did they then play off for, for a title? No, I think that means the next, I think there's like a promotion relegation thing. So next carnival, did, that did means the, VFA the Amateurs come last? go up and the VFA drop down, I think. Too used to those little flick passes. You can't do them, son. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Maybe the Amateurs were used to the wet conditions up there. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's get stuck into the uh, the season proper then, working from top to bottom. Bottom to top. Uh, Kaz or Moz, who's going to introduce the teams? Moz, you got, I've got, t- it you got the right there? here, and I must. There's a bit of a disclaimer. It starts Perfect. pretty gruesomely, with Hawthorne smack bang on the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Alfie. Um, Hawthorne finished with 18 <laughs> losses, no wins, <gasps> and no points. Oh, this is the one. Is that so right? Sad. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, and this is uh, actually there's a whole reason behind Hawthorne's fall from grace, um, which I'm going to get stuck into now because it's quite a new siren, maybe. No, not at all. Um, so, firstly, shout out to the Hawk headquarters uh, website, which I've got a lot of this information from. Um, but Moz, you alluded to in the last episode in yes. your section. Um, about Alec Alberston being stood down as coach of the club. Oh, yes. I think you alluded to that in some, some way in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was t- he was coaching Hawthorne in 49, was told he wasn't going to coach the club the following year, but was still required as a player. Um, and this was fine with him. The board settled on Bob McCaskill as his replacement. Now, McCaskill immediately set about changing the club, starting with the jumper. Kaz, what can you tell us about the Hawks' new jumper? Well, you all know the stripes of the brown and beautiful mustardy yellow. Um, um, it, now, previously before... <laughs> I think they yes, call it gold. It's not yellow. Well, it's not yellow, Cass. It's gold. <laughs> gold, excuse me. <laughs> I, the words were coming out of my mouth and I couldn't stop myself. Um, <laughs> so, and uh, leading up to this time where it changed to what we know and love... Um, it was a yoke. So it was just a, a sash sort of a yoke. So the diamond um, as a... The V. Like a B, yeah, a V, that's right. Um, but, uh, it was predominantly brown, though, with a yellow V. Not what we saw when we, they got the mustard pot nickname, unfortunately. But um, 
yeah. slowly leaving the mustard pot uh, era behind. Mm-hmm. But we won't let them forget. <laughs> And a bit more on that as well, Kaz. Um, McCaskill thought the jumper as it was made them look too small. Um, so he wanted vertical stripes, sim- similar to Collingwood, that would have the effect of making them look bigger and huskier and harder to beat. Um, so it was all about changing the image of the club and making them overall a better club. Yes. Yeah. So they're finally, so they're finally wearing the jumper we know them in. Yep. So it seems... Okay, so McCaskill... McCaskill came out pre-season. He said he believed the Hawks could make the four. Um, new coach selling hope. Um, now, Alberson swore that he was promised the role of captain by the board, even though he wasn't coach. Um, and despite several tempting offers to captain coach in the country, he ignored those. He listened to his good mate, Cole Austin, who I think used, who was the Brownlow medalist from the previous year, and decided to stay at Glenferry, decided to stay with the Hawks. Um, now he missed Alberson missed a few early cricket uh, early practice matches because of cricket commitments, and in that time Bob McCaskill was impressed mm-hmm. with the tough play of Kevin Curran. Uh, Curran was a former war hero, a big man who threw his body around in a different sort of style to Alberson. Um, his nickname was actually Hungry. Um, the new coach believed that Hawthorne needed a more imposing figure as captain, so on April 11, um, he announced that Kevin Curran was new captain by unanimous vote selection by the selection committee. Upon hearing this, Alec Elberston and Cole Austin immediately asked for clearances. Alec coming out the following day and slamming the selection committee in the press, calling it one of the dirtiest things he'd ever had put on him. Um, Players threatened to strike in support of Elberston and many supporters called for the board to resign. The selection committee issued a statement saying Elberston had made a mistake and no promise had ever been made. Um, Alberston and Austin actually turned up to the final practice match on April 15, but were told they weren't required. Mm-hmm. Um, McCaskill had said his position was untenable with his players making statements in the press, and either they want or they went Fracturing. or he went. So that night was quite a sad na- night as uh, Austin and Alberston stood outside Glenferry Oval in tears. Um, both players were cleared, one to North Melbourne and one to Richmond, and all of a sudden the club was without its two best players a week before the season started. What an unbelievable decision. Context. Yeah, so Moz, that really explains why they are 0 mm-hmm. and 18. Absolutely, it does. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. so Charlie, I, I've kind of st- stood on your toes there in terms of captain coach, but you can still do the honours. <laughs> let me let me just ra- yeah, run it through. So, uh, yeah, coached by Bob McCaskill, as you said there. <laughs> yeah. Their captain was Kev Curran. Uh, their leading goal kicker was Gordon Anderson with 21 and their best and fairest winner was John Kennedy. There you go. Um, now, I'm glad you mentioned jo- John Kennedy Sr. Um, because he made his debut this season. Yes. Kaz. Uh, and he actually just passed away this year in 2020. So, yeah. Um, yeah. He, the, he did, yeah. Elevated to – I don't know. Kaz, tell us about him. Yes. Oh, it's, a, uh, it's a bit exciting talking about this. John Kennedy, nicknames Kanga, standing at 188 centimetres, weighing 89 kgs. Kennedy was by no means the most the, the most elegant or naturally skilled of footballers, but he nevertheless possessed considerable football nous, something you just you just can't train, you know, you just have it. <laughs> and he applied this to excellent effect um, as both player and coach at Hawthorne. Kennedy joined Hawthorne from Teachers College in 1950 and made an immediate impact, winning a best and fairest award in his debut season. So good signs there in the future. John Kennedy would become a legend of the league, coaching Hawthorne and later North. I didn't know this. 
Um, wonder how long you coached him off for. And became the league's 29th legend in 2020, mm. shortly before his death. That's what yeah, it says. Yeah, good. So he's a legend of the, of the club, and we'll get to know him more in coming episodes. Um, but knowing where this club is at, it's no surprise they lost their opening three games by a combined margin of 258 points. Ouch. Um, round four, Collingwood beat them, beat them as well. Um, and it would have been a, an absolute shellacking if they hadn't have kicked seven goals, 25. <laughs> 725, jeez. They were just pathetic this year. Um, the Argus even suggested other clubs give financial assistance to the Hawks. Um, uh. New captain Kevin Curran was on the sidelines early on, suspended for four weeks for attempting to kick Tom Miller of Footscray. What a goose. Um, his first game back was round eight, and they were taking on Cole Austin's new side, Richmond. And during the week, Austin expressed his doubts about Curran's tactical ability. Uh, so Curran decided to take matters into his own hands and Kevin lined Austin up from about 40 metres away and flattened him after he had kicked the football. <laughs> um, and so that resulted in another four-week suspension, Moz. Oh, great choice of captain. Yeah. Um, Curran probably didn't help his chances by stating, if I was going to do something, I would pick a place not in the open. Curran's Tigers would win by 32 points. Uh, in round 10, they had a real chance to win. They were two goals up over Carlton, three-quarter time, suffered a five-point loss and uh, not holding on to it. Uh, and then they had a two-point loss at, against Footscray. Uh, but apart from those two, every other game was basically a heavy defeat. Uh, and Hawthorne ended the season without a victory. Yeah, and as you said, a heavy defeat there. They've ended up with, what, a percentage under 50. So basically their yeah. scores have been more than doubled every time. <laughs> As an average, so great. Yeah, oh, I'd just like to bring up the jumper again. I mean, what, they changed it. Why did they keep it after such a? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that was one <laughs> yeah, thing they had point. going for them, though. <laughs> so a winless season. This mm. it's a blight on the game. Eleventh uh, this season was South Melbourne. They managed to get five wins. And no, yes, five wins, 13 losses, and uh, a percentage of 75.5. So, a pretty big step up from Hawthorne. Yeah, but I mean, it's not hard to step up from the ground. Um, (laughs) So, captain coached by Gordon Lane uh, this year. He was also their leading goal kicker with 47, and their best and fairest winner was Billy Williams. Yes. All right. We've got some, uh, some good debutantes here. We have Ernie Collahole, Urban Dunyam, who I think has got to be a favourite, Kaz, for the McCracken Award. Uh, yeah. We've got Bob Trainer and Gray and Gray Seaburn. So not it looks like Gary, but it's Gray, G R A Y. Amazing. Hey. <laughs> yeah. Um so be an easy one. Um Moz, another another nice. Brownlow tidbit you told us last season was uh that Ron Clegg was leaving for Tasmania. Yes. I did say that. Yeah. So last we heard, he was he was leaving. He got uh, he got offered a lucrative deal. Um, they were going to send him up with a milk bar, yeah, and he's he going to sign this big contract. Car. But mm-hmm. the league blocked his move. Yeah, the league blocked his move, as did the AFNC. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love this. So he came back. Um, now, South, you, you mentioned Gordon Whopper Lane is their new coach, Charlie, um, yeah. poached from Essendon. Yes. Because um, South were convinced they needed to hire a playing coach. They hadn't had one for a few seasons. And this seemed an inspired choice. Round one. Okay, interesting. Round one, they defeated Collingwood by 20 points. Ron Bywater kicking five goals. 
brilliant start. Collingwood are always renowned for for starting hot in the season. But the uh, the aforementioned Ron Clegg broke his hand, unfortunately, in this game and would miss the next six games. So, a bit unfortunate. Uh, but round two was a disaster. They lost by 102 points to Essendon. Uh, to make matters le- worse, they <laughs> suffered injuries to Len Crane, who did his ankle. Alf Kalick broke his ribs. Jack Icorn broke his arm. Jim Gull dislocated his finger. Ron Pays hurt his leg. Mm. Oh, God, yeah. So, not great. Um, now, at about this time, um, they had a play- Well, they had a player called Don Scott they were trying to get across from East Perth. He tried to come to South a year earlier, but his, his transfer was blocked by... Uh, I think the AFNC as well. So he had to sit out for a year. Um, and come 1950, nothing had progressed. So he appealed to the AFNC and that went into May and he still hadn't played, but he came straight in uh, for round three, which was the Lakeside pennant, um, playing at centre half back um, in a game they lost though. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but the Swans yeah. won their <laughs> one again. Oh, so those, those Lakeside pennant numbers are starting to even out. Not really. They're getting closer. <laughs> oh, unbelievable. Um, they, the Swan, Swans won again in round six, defeating the hapless Hawks by 10 goals. Billy Williams was six. Taylor and Whopper Lane with four each. Now, round 14 was the return game against St Kilda in the Lakeside Pennant, which they won. Uh, Whopper with a six in that one. Um, and their fifth and final win of the year was over the Hawks, the only team below South. Uh, they beat them by nine points. Following the season, Ron Clegg Ooh. moved to Tasmania, to New Norfolk. He took up a lease on a milk bar for nine years. Would he return for 1951? Tune in next week to find out. <laughs> Sounds like it does. <laughs> in 10th position was Footscray, also with five wins and 13 losses, but a percentage of 91.7. Yes, so uh, the Tricolours. Uh, this year, captain coach Arthur Oliver again. Uh, their lead goal kicker was Bill Wood with 45, and their best and fairest winner was Charlie Sutton. Um, uh, bit of a disappointing year, but it could uh, have so easily been nine win. Uh, sorry, yeah, nine wins instead of five for them, Jimmy. They they lost. No, sorry, it could have easily close. been eleven wins. They lost six games by four points or less it could this have. season. Oh yeah. So they've tumbled down the ladder quite a bit then. Well, well, they've been known to yo-yo, so this was supposed to be one of their up seasons, Charlie, but it, it was not. It was uh, not. Um, so some debutantes for Footscray. We've got Bernie Smallwood and Jack yes. Collins. Kaz, can you tell us a bit about Jack Collins? That's right, Tim. I'm going to jump in. Yep, Jack Collins, after playing initially with the Yarraville, where his father Jim had been captain coach, Jack Collins joined Footscray in 1950. Um, during his debut season, he played a number of games at centre-half back, um, but it was ultimately as a key position forward that he made his name. Oh, don't we love that when players switch from backline to, to be great forwards? Powerful overhead and a tremendously accurate kick over long distances. Jack Collins. Get around him. <laughs> Get around him. Great. So their first win of the season was round three against Hawthorne. Uh, Arthur Oliver still kicking on, kicked four. Round six was a really close game against Carlton. Um, now... Full forward Bill Wood seemed to have won this game off his own boot for the Doggies. Um, they were down by three points, and he took a mark as the si- pretty much as the siren went, lining up only 10 metres out in a slight angle to, to win the game. Uh, he went back. Uh, he'd already booted seven goals, I should add. And look, this seemed the easiest attempt he'd had all day. But to the horror of every Footscray fan sitting there, the kick slewed off his foot, missed the big sticks, and Carlton got home by three points. 
Mm. You hate to see it. You really hate to see it. Mm. Round eight. But um, we're all getting good. Um, some more faith in the new um, siren. Yes. Let's, let's hear it. <laughs> yes, heard it. Uh, round eight, they smashed South by 63 points. Bill Wood with five. Um, now, leading into round 12 against St Kilda, Charlie Sutton was promoted to vice-captain. Uh, he replaced the injured Len McKenkie. Sutton had been moved onto the ball from the back pocket in 1950 and his fearlessness was a highlight. We know he'll go on to become a premiership captain. No, 19, uh, now, round 14, it was a bit of a scare. They, they just scraped home against the winless Hawks. Wouldn't that be an embarrassment to be the only team to lose to Hawks in that year? Luckily, they did not. Uh, now, round 17, a player named Herb Henderson finally made his debut. Um, this is a good story, actually. He was a champion up in Mildura. Early in the season, he caught a train down to Melbourne with the intention of training for Richmond. Uh, when Footscray officials learnt of this, they sent a delegation of players to North Melbourne Station to cut him off because they were meeting him at uh, Southern Cross, Spencer Street Station. Um, they jumped onto the train, walked from carriage to carriage, calling out his name. Uh, Roy Russell found him, one of their players, and told him, grab your togs, we're going to training. Uh, and the train arrived at Spencer Street Station. Richmond officials couldn't find him. He'd gone with the uh, gone with the doggies players to sign with the doggies, yeah. That is so good. No. Yeah. Cut, cut him off at the pass. They swiped yep. him. Uh, so long story short, he made his debut <laughs> in round 17 in a win over the, the, the Blues. Nice. Yeah. Phenomenal. All right, uh, St Kilda. F- yeah, St Kilda finished ninth this season with eight wins, nine losses, and one draw. We can't wait to hear about that. And a percentage of eighty-six point three. Yeah, so the Saints this year are captained by Fred Froud, and sorry, coached by Fred Froud and captained by Fred Green. Uh, the lead goal kicker was Peter Bennett with 40, 59. and their best and fairest was Bruce Phillips. Yeah. Um, now, St Kilda started like an absolute house on fire. Oh, yeah. Actually, some, some debuts first. We've got a, a player called Felix Russo, who is the grandfather of Luke Ball and also Josh P. Kennedy, the Sydney Josh Kennedy. Oh, yeah. Oh. That's, some, that's, some strong, that's oh. a strong bloodline, that is. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so one of those is a paternal grandfather. One of them is a maternal nice. grandfather. Yeah. Um, Sa- Saints were actually... Forward thinking this season, they started training in February. <laughs> well, hey, preseason. What? Yeah, like, and that's what clubs generally do now. Yeah. Um, I think they were they must have been one of the first to do it. And it, look, it worked to start off. Yeah. They, as I said, started off like a house on fire. Round one was a nine point win against Footscray. Then round two was a momentous day when St Kilda registered their very first one hundred yeah. point win. Oh, oh, beautiful yeah, milestone! It's only it's only taken yeah. them fifty three seasons. <laughs> they couldn't have done it at the Lakeside Pennant, but they they, they did it. <laughs> it was against the Hawks at Junction Oval, um, and they should have been ahead by a lot more. They kicked four twelve in the opening quarter. Peter Bennett kicked eight. Jim Ross six. Uh, absolutely dominated the Hawks. They kicked twenty goals, twenty four, one hundred and forty four to Massive. the Hawks five five thirty five. 109 point win. This is their biggest ever win to this stage and still sits at number still sits at number 7 on their all-time list. On their yeah. all-time list or on the all-time list? Their all-time their list. Their all-time list. Yeah. Uh, now wow. round 3, round 3 we spoke about the Lakeside Pennant that was a win to the Saints there, 22 points. Um, that's the last two Lakeside Pennant matches in a row. They're on fire. This is almost <laughs> what we'd call a streak almost. 
two thirds. <laughs> um, that's leveling. I mean, the tally the tally now, Charlie, after this game here is fifteen South Melbourne, seven St Kilda. So it's not really evening up at all. They've almost got half. They're on the way. Yeah, look out. Yeah. Um, the Saints then pipped North Melbourne by two points at Junction Oval, and suddenly they'd won five in a row. Uh, now, round five, a record crowd turned out to the Junction Oval, 47,000 people. Queues up to 300 metres long forming outside the ground before the game. Um, Saints supporters flocking to see their team. Um, St Kilda were overawed. Bloody bandwagon <laughs> supporters. Ugh. Yeah, that's right. People jumping shit. That's right. St Kilda, as if overawed by the situation, started nervously and kicked six behind straight before scoring their first goal, which wasn't until the second quarter. But the crowds in the stands went wild when that happened and seemed to spur the Saints on, who soon took the lead uh, when their full forward Peter Bennett scored his second their second goal. Once St Kilda got their noses in front, their fast running game had the more experienced Carlton lineup struggling to stay in the match. In the final quarter, Carlton threw everything at the young Saints in an effort to overhaul them, but the Saints' defence, led by Bruce Phillips and Keith Drinian, held firm. And at this stage, St Kilda were five, five wins, no losses, equal top oh, of the That yeah. extra training's all paying off. It's all coming to fruition. For now. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> but then did they come back to earth? <laughs> Round six, they played Geelong in Geelong. Geelong won by 94 points. Which must mm-hmm. must be the I reckon that's got to be up there with the biggest losses for an unbeaten team ever. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then Essendon the week after smashed them by over ten goals. Um, so yeah, it was a really bright first half of the season. Not great second half of the season. Because um, yeah, the first half of the season they'd seen young players like Jack McDonald, Keith Drinian. Jack Coffey, Keith Mulhall, Bruce Phillips playing awesome football. Uh, an ex-player like Billy Moore was up and about. He was writing stuff in the newspaper. But they fell on a heap in the second half of the season, winning two of their last ten, including a draw. Um, and that draw, Moz, was round 16 against Carlton. Oh, great. Which would mark for the first time since 1923 they hadn't lost consecutive games against Carlton. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Good times. But hey, they, they didn't finish in a double-digit position. They finished ninth. Mm-hmm. And Carlton only finished just above them, <laughs> also with eight wins, nine losses and one draw, and a slightly higher percentage of 93.3. Yeah, miserable year for Carlton this year. Yeah. A bit pathetic. But uh, let's... <laughs> so, uh, this year, uh, coached still by Perce Bentley and co- captained again by Ern Henfrey. Uh their lead goal kicker was Kent Baxter with 43 and best and fairest winner, Arthur Hodgson here. Great. Um, so, some debutants. Doug Guy. Mm. Doug Guy. That Doug Guy. Um, and we've got two others champions. We've got Bruce Combin and Laurie Kerr. <laughs> Kaz, can you tell us about that? Oh, them. Sure. Um, that's right. Well, I've got here Laurie Kerr, um, 178 centimetres, six, uh, 79 kg. Speed, aggression and courage a blisteringly quick winger, centerman or half-forward flanker. Recruited by the Blues from inner suburban Auburn, Kerr was a former Victorian schoolboy sprint champion who mixed football with professional running. Um, not just not just <laughs> your amateur competition, but professional. Won a number of sprint gifts in his late teens. At Carlton, he quickly established himself as a winger who played with passion and tenacity. I'll tell you what, um, seeing Ed Langdon run around 
the way he does. <laughs> really fall in love with a good winger. And we've got we've got Kevin Murray yeah. on the way as well. He can run. He can stream down that wing. Uh, Bruce Combin. Uh, this is a great nickname. Bruce Bugsy Combin was a hugely popular and loyal servant of the Carlton Football Club for more than 50 years, earning wide appreciation for his courage, honesty and reliability on the field. Uh, in his 188 games between 1950 and 61. Uh, and it all began with a toss of a coin. Guys, listen to this. I've never heard of anything like this. Now, the war's over, it's just for a little bit of background. Bruce and his older brother, Bill Combin, hailed from Werribee South in 1946. At the tender age of 15, Bruce joined Bill at Carlton. So they're both playing at Carlton. And quickly won a place alongside his brother in the uh, under-19 team. Oh, there you go. Uh, both boys showed promise and were determined to play VFL before a major problem arose. As the post-World World War, post -World War II recession eased, the family business began expanding. And it was painfully obvious that both lads couldn't be spared oh, no. to chase their dream. Oh. One of them uh, would have to put the family first, one of them, and give up league football for a career in the grocery trade. So they tossed a coin to decide the matter, and it was Bruce who called right. Bill returned home uh, for good um, to help secure his family future. Um, meanwhile, Bruce developed into a star rover with the thirds at Carlton. You, you think he'd be playing on his mind, maybe? Um, and he was just 175 centimetres and less than 75 kgs. Nevertheless, he was fearless, creative, and an excellent reader of the ball off the packs. That sounds very handy. And he was also a glorious long drop kick on the run. Yes. What a story. Yeah. I know, right? Could be a movie. So uh, in, you're, you're in the pack there and you, sort of, you might egg yourself on to, to be a, that little yeah. bit better because, you know, you, you're, your brother sacrificed something for you and, and you're glad your family's going well and all. But yeah. Anyway, interesting one. Toss of a coin. All right. Well, round one. Round one, Carlton lost to Melbourne. And here's an interesting fact for you. This was the first of 242 games played by Carlton without playing in a grand final. A record for the club that stood until the 21st century. Ah. Ah. <laughs> oh um, their first win was in round two, which was a rematch of the previous year's semi-final, which was against North Melbourne. Again, Carlton kicked away in the, sec in the last quarter. Ken Baxter with five goals. Uh, now, round three, they played a pesky Collingwood and we beat them by 11 points. But Perth Bentley had this to say of Collingwood. I've been in football a long time now, but this Collingwood team continues to amaze me. They upset my fellows from the first bounce and never at any stage do we recover balance. It was a football lesson in how to play a tight game, the sort that puts a brilliant side on the wrong leg and keeps it there. We won the game, but had to take a football lesson to do so. We, will, we won't forget it. Now, they beat Richmond by 11, then lost to St Kilda, scraped home with a lucky win over Footscray, beat South, pushed Essendon all the way, and then beat the Cats by one point, scoring a come-from-behind victory over the sixth-place Geelong down at Cardinia Park. Mm. Um, and in that game, they were behind the entire day, but they sprang to life, kicked six goals to one to make up a 28-point deficit at three-quarter time and took the game. Um, the Blues were helped by Geelong's poor conversion rate in front of goals. So at the halfway mark of the season, they were fourth. They'd had some good wins. Uh, but then they started to, to drop things. Uh, they had a dip in form against Hawthorne where they only just beat them in that last quarter and would only win one of their final eight games. We talked about the game they drew with St Kilda. Yeah. In that game, they were up by three goals, so they gave that lead up. 
Um, and look, by by the end of the season, by round 17, finals were out of the picture. So round 18 was a, a sad day for the club because this would be Ken Baxter's last day, last game. Yeah. But in his farewell match against South Melbourne at Princess Park, he kicked five goals to finish his career off in great style. And the Blues got up for him by beating the Swans by two goals. Yes. So, what, a three-time premiership player there, Ken Baxter, retiring on 153 games. And they've lost a few good players over the years and yep, just sure. haven't replaced them just yet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, moving up. Collingwood finished with a nice even nine wins and nine losses and a percentage of 110.4. Yes. So, coached by Fonz Kine this year and captained by Gordon Hocking. Their lead goal kicker was Lou the Lib Richards with 35 and best and fairest winner Charlie Utting here. So there's a bit of, bit of coaching controversy at the beginning of the season here, but we do have to say Fonskine was the coach the whole time. So hopefully they everyone's had a listen to our Jock McHale special, Charlie, because we go into a bit of detail about this this yes. handover. But, but if we summarise it quickly... Um, yeah. Absolutely. So it was always, it was always gonna. It was always said by the uh, by the um, board that uh, Bevan Bevan Woods, who was a, the second coach at this stage, was going to be take take over in the transition, and that was something that had been said, you know, from before. So he he did. Even in the preseason, um, there was a little bit of angst by the by the club by the supporters and they were even booing him at, at uh, practice matches. And he, he in, uh, in great form, actually yeah. stood down from the role and said, they don't want me. He took back his role as seconds coach and Fonz Kine was elevated to the position that he'd wanted because he was actually probably going to go elsewhere for a, for a coaching job if, uh, if the one at Collingwood hadn't opened up. So I think the, the general public wanted Fonz Kine and didn't really give them Bevan, Bevan or Bevan, Bevan. Oh, this is Bevan great. Woods, a, a real, a real proper shot. Um, so he, yeah, so he withdrew, went back, withdrew, went back to coaching the seconds, and Kine was appointed coach. And then because of this, also all the committee members resigned their positions, and Curtis, who was the leader of sort of the pack to get Bevan Woods in the position, uh, didn't even seek seek re-election. And former player and great man Sid Coventry was actually elected the new president unopposed at the beginning of the year. So huge changes down at Collingwood. New president, new board, new coach. And, you know, Jock McHale lasted 37 years. His replacement lasted four days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Ridiculous. Um, who did you have as coach, as captain, sorry, Charlie? Um, Gordon Hocking. Yeah. Yeah, so Hocking, yeah. Uh, because at this stage, Fonz Kine had retired as a player. He, yes. Because the, the team wanted a non-playing coach, so he didn't play. So that's why he was handed the, the captaincy. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So he, he retired as as captain and took over as coach, yeah. Yeah, great. We've got some uh, debutantes as well. We've got uh, Harry Painter and Tharold Merritt. I think that's how you say it. <laughs> Kaz? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll uh, talk about Tharold. Um Ignoring the fact that he looked rather more like an underfed schoolboy um, than a league footballer. See, I'm laughing because that was me. Um, <laughs> Collingwood Rover and he was a Collingwood Rover and wingman. Oh, another wingman. Um, what the mere statistics do not reveal, however, is the nerve, excuse me, the verve, aggression, courage, determination, and above all, consummate skill in which 
with which those achievements were laced. Aged at 16, once dubbed a jet-propelled midget. <laughs> <laughs> Merritt made his Collingwood debut in 1950, standing just 168 centimetres and weighing 62 kgs. Um, he was the smallest player on the field in virtually every game he played. Tiny. And this, combined with his fearless attitude, made him extraordinarily susceptible to injury. <laughs> Nevertheless, he knew no other way to, than to play with a dynamic, wholehearted zeal and aggression. I suppose he... Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? But usually the little guys don't get injured. Maybe just a little bit underweight there. I look at Caleb Daniel. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh he's, yeah. he's a great kick, isn't he, as well? Uh, and there was a sense in which during the 1950s, he personified the Collingwood spirit better than any other. Great. Um so, round one, Collingwood's first game post-Jock McHale was a loss to South Melbourne. Um, and this isn't a surprise considering, the, you know, the club being in disarray. And it was the first time since 1942 they hadn't won their opening game. Yeah. Oh, wow. Round two, they yeah. they played their old foe, Fitzroy. And this would be Fonskine's first winner's coach at home at Victoria Park. Uh, they led from the start with Bill Toomey and Lou Richards kicking three goals each. Now, a one-goal ninth first quarter against Carlton cost them the game in round three but rounds four and five they'd go with back-to-back wins over Hawthorne and then a fast finishing Geelong Geelong, who almost pinched the game for them round six they took on Richmond and Bill Toomey had an absolute blinder for the Pies he kicked 11 goals nine of the team's 19 goals 25 wow 11-9 he had 20 (laughs) scoring shots yep massive yep um The Pies smashed the Dogs by 72 points and were looking on their way to September, an unlikely September uh, berth. Uh, now, round nine, in this loss to North Melbourne, Tharold, Tharold Merritt uh, revealed later on his fear of North player Ted Jarrard, uh, and this is what he said. Fon said, keep running and don't be a standing target because he'll nail you and he'll know you're good. So one time when a North player called for the ball, boom, I gave him the hand pass. He runs up, up the field and gives a goal, but it was out of fear of Jarrod. <laughs> And now, and knowing how tiny Merritt was as well, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> no. So yeah, on on their way to September, but those th- those losses interrupted their plans. Uh, so Fonz Kine did what many coaches do or threaten to do. He came out of retirement uh, to help his team win, and he once more pulled on the boots and took to the field. And this did the trick against the Saints, who were no match for Collingwood. I was going to say it's a bit different to um. To Kazali saying he's going to do it when he's 49. Fon's just retired the year before as captain. It's a bit of a different story, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, but the rest of the season, they were yo-yo between win-loss, win-loss. Um, they need, needed to beat Geelong in round 16, and this would see them in the four, but a last-minute goal to Neil Trezai's. Saw mm. the Cats win by a goal, and then finals were now pretty much out of the equation. They finished the season with a two-point win over Footscray, uh, but it's no surprise they didn't, you know, they had an up and down year considering the turmoil off the field. Should say um, there as well. They they lost a great great player this year in uh, Len Fitzgerald, who went went to Sturt in South Adelaide and and uh, played in the Sandfall and won three McGarry medals over there. Yeah, that was actually a controversial loss as well because they I think they blocked it. It was a bit of the fallout from the whole uh, league situation. Ooh. Moving on. Oh, I love it when it gets to this part part of the ladder and a team has more wins than losses. It really sits nicely. Uh, so Richmond had 10 wins and eight losses and a percentage of 102.0. 102 yes. So uh, coached by Jack Dyer, captained by Paleface Morris. 
the league goal kicker was Ray Poulter with 56, and their best and fairest winners were Bill Morris and Roy Wright. Yeah, um, I think this must be the first uh, McCracken Name Award winner who's captain the side as well. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> um, now. Well, Jazz Leagues Gambino never, never captains. <laughs> Gambetta, not Gambino. Hopefully we see Gambetta. some better. Childish Gambino. Oh, childish Gambino. Now, as you can understand, um, the season started pretty poorly for them as well. Losing Jack Jack Dyer was a massive uh, hole to fill. Uh, big presence on the field that they couldn't really replace easily. Um, so they didn't get their first win until round three, which was over Fitzroy at home. Max Curry kicking three. Uh, coming into round six, they were, actually, they were one win and four losses um, and their season effectively over before it began. However, they got the win over Collingwood after trailing at three-quarter time. Ray Poulter kicked seven for the Tigers, Ken Sire with four. And then they won four on the trot somehow. Um, round 10, they took on South at Lakeside Over, which was a close affair. The Tigers led by a goal at three-quarter time to the frustration of South supporters whose team could only kick uh, points in the third quarter. Um, however, disgruntled Tiger supporters were equally as unhappy with their team's misses and they showered the goal umpire with bottles, orange peels and other rubbish after he signaled, signaled a behind for Richmond. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in this game, South ran out 15 points. <laughs> um, That'll make him think twice. Round 12, they beat a North Melbourne team who were riding a, riding a seven-game hot streak. They beat them by 13 points. Ray Poulter with three in that one. Uh, round 14, in wet and muddy conditions, they took on Fitzroy, uh, which and they lost this game. But the highlight of this was when a Richmond follower deliberately rubbed the ball in mud before returning it to the Fitzroy follower, who had a free kick, uh, 10 yards out in front of goal. In retaliation, the Fitzroy player flicked mud off the ball onto the Richmond player, and the umpire reversed the free kick. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Classic. It's so it's oh, so gosh. kind of like gentlemanly um, as well, really. So if you know what I mean, like <laughs> uh, the Tigers win three of their last four, but miss finals. Um, but the committee was pretty happy with the team, the way the team was able to turn things around after that hmm. poor start. In fifth place was Fitzroy with ten wins, eight losses, and a percentage of one hundred and ten point five. Captained by Alan Rudvin, their lead goal kicker was Eddie Hart with fifty, and their best and fairest Bill Stephen. So, after three losses to start the season, they opened their account in round four, smashing South Melbourne by 11 goals with Eddie Hart and Norm Johnson doing their thing with three goals each. Uh, then they smashed the Hawks by 81 points, Ed, uh, Eddie Goodger kicking nine in the, in the game the Gorillas absolutely dominated. Um, but a further three losses saw them sitting at two wins and six losses, so quite low down on the ladder. Mm. Yeah. Round 10, which was a loss to Geelong would also prove to be Norm Smith's last game as a player. Um, they lost this by 20. Taking his place as captain was Alan the Baron Ruffin. Um, and this was maybe the tonic they needed because after this, they went on to win six games straight. Yes. Uh, but it was really too little too late. Um, round 17, notable because it was the first time Norm Smith had beaten Melbourne as a coach, beating them by five points. And... But, I mean, looking at their... They, so they beat the Demons, who we know are in finals, and then the last round, round 18, they knocked off North Melbourne, who were also, you know, second on the ladder, 
finals bound. Um, and this is, you know, this is one of the one of the games in Ron Carter's top 100 Fitzroy wins for the century. Um, so in this, you're holding that great book up there, aren't you? Oh wow, <laughs> I am. Ron Simpson's grand high marking and five goals was a highlight. Fitzroy swamped North Melbourne with their pace, dash, and the solidity and reliability of their defence. Uh, and the win also ended North Melbourne's run of 17 straight at Arden Street. Yeah, Fitzroy supporters would have been licking their lips at this stage for, for 51. Yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't yeah. all doom and gloom. Alan Ruthven, who Moz is going to speak about a bit later, had a great season, winning the top prize. Uh, yet not not taking out the club's best and fairest, like you said, Charlie. Very interesting. You, you look at this and you say, you know, Norm Norm finished up his playing career early on. I think that was kind of where he wanted to be anyway. He never wanted to be continue as a playing coach. He, oh, absolutely. He probably took the, fir- the first option he could to get off the field, <laughs> so and concentrate on his coaching. So yeah, yeah. Just like Richmond and Fitzroy, Geelong also finished with 10 wins and 8 losses, but they scraped into the finals with a percentage of 124.4. In fact, it's quite a large scrape. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's nice. more of a scoop. Yeah, they're in. Yeah, very strong percentage. But you're right, they're on the mm-hmm. same points, but yeah, man, just managed to get it done, didn't they? So, um, coached by Reg Hickey um, and captained by Lindsay Weiss, their lead goal kicker was George... Gonanen with 45, and their best and fairest winner yeah. was John Hyde. Um, great. So, some debutants we have for Geelong yeah. are Neil Ratsu and Keith McKee. Ratsu. Ratsu. R A T Z O U. Ratsu. Sounds very Finnish or Scandinavian. Ah, Ratsu. Uh, now, Geelong gained the services of George Gonanen yeah. from Essendon after he played the first two games of the season for the Bombers. Um, but the issue with. The issue with him, well, well, he's a full forward, but obviously we've got Coleman, so we don't need him. Um, But his issue was getting down to Geelong to train, and he he couldn't. So the the club actually appealed to fans to see if they could drive him to and from training. Really? Mm. Are you kidding? But he, uh, yes, he made his debut for the Cats in round five against Collingwood and made an immediate impact, kicking four goals and a close loss. That's great. In round eight, he went even better, kicking eight goals as the Cats smashed the previously unbeaten Saints by 94 points. Uh, now, at the start of the... Kaz, I've got a question to ask you following this. At the start of the round nine Carlton Geelong game at Cardinia Park, umpire <laughs> Cleland slipped over while bouncing the ball on hands and knees in a mud patch in the middle of the ground. How? But he managed to avoid getting any mud on his whites. And the crowd all had a good chuckle at his expense. So he maybe, maybe slipped over, done a flip and landed on his feet again or something. It's, the Blues won by a point. Umpires will do anything to avoid getting mud on themselves, honestly. <laughs> that, that was my question to you. What? Yeah. Have you slipped over? Have you? Oh, I see where you're going with this. Um, I've seen a spectacular one. Um, run, oh, uh, I've been run through a few times, um, like so I couldn't uh, on the boundary, you know, so I couldn't see the ball go over. But uh, I didn't. I didn't fall over. Like I got split in two, I reckon, by um, oh. this full forward. It was like five times the size of me. Um, uh, yeah, um, uh, yeah, yeah, no, nothing too spectacular. I've seen a good one though um, from another a boundary, um, and she she was running down there towards the goal in front of the cheer squad at Wandon, and um, she's a, she's a VFL umpire now, and uh, she slipped over, and then the crowd started to, like really abusing her, and but it was all the ladies. It was like a ladies' day. And it just it just was an out of body experience for me. They, they were calling her, yeah, stupid, all this sort of stuff, because uh, um because there was a player in the way, and they just sort of and she went, wow, oh god, because of the muddy, just aquaplaned basically. Nice. 
Um, also in this game, Jim Fitzgerald of Geelong narrowly avoided knocking down two kids who were perched in trees behind the goals. <laughs> I mean, if that was me, I'd be aiming for them. Yeah. They put <laughs> yeah, exactly. There. <laughs> Good target. Now, in Geelong's round 11 win over South Melbourne, they were, sorry, they smashed the Swans by 80 points. Russell Renfrey kicked six. However, gun full forward Lindsay White snapped his Achilles and this ultimately ended his career. Oh, um, oh yeah, that's not, that's not something funny, you come back Funny from. story, though, according to Bob Davis, is when, when Lindsay White had his assessment and announced to the team that's what he had, Troubles Flanagan, um, who we know always riles things up, was convinced he had the same injury. <laughs> I snapped my well. Yeah, yeah one of the reasons he's called Troubles. He, oh, that's why he's called Troubles. <laughs> he always he yeah, always he's just trouble. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, round fifteen is Geelong were able to kick away from the Demons in the last quarter to win by twenty six. The crowd found it highly amusing when that one hundred eighty eight centimeter Don Cordner was brought down by one hundred seventy meter <laughs> centimeter Neil Trezires. <laughs> the highlight of that game. You know, you just you got to use a man's height against him. Uh, you hit him underneath the uh, the centre point and just flips. Yeah. The flip uh, in the final game, they played Richmond, and Richmond needed a big win to leapfrog the Cats to make the finals. Um, the Tigers won the game by eight points, and the Cats originally thought they'd missed the finals, but realising the margin wasn't enough to make up the twenty six percent, they realised they'd made finals for the first time since nineteen forty. Go Cats! Finals. <laughs> and the mighty D's finished third with 12 wins, six losses, and 123.3 as their percentage. Go D's. Yes. So coached by Alan Lafontaine again in his second year, and captained by Shane McGrath. Uh, their best and fairest winner was Dennis Cordner, and he was also their lead goal kicker with 36. Yeah, so some debutantes. We've got uh, Jack Hiscock and yeah. Con O'Toole. Yeah, great. Round one, they had better ball handling and aerial superiority to Carlton, um, and they ended up winning this game by 20 points, with Woods, McGrath and Rule being the best players. Then they had an epic match against Richmond, where in the dying minutes, Dennis Cordner went forward and gold twice uh, to save the game for... The, the D's there. The Tigers did cut the, mat, the margin back to a point, uh, but the game had already finished by then. Um, Richmond were, were attacking... Oh, no, actually, sorry. Richmond were attacking when Don Cordner flew in to save the game with a mark in the back line to ensure victory to the Demons. They then suffered two losses, and then in round five, in a game described by former Demon defender Wally Locke as dull... The Demons withstood a fine second quarter performance by the Bulldogs to register an easy victory. I'm liking your sincerity. Uh, Les Doc kicked four in that one. <laughs> um, round six, Melbourne grind, managed to grind Rich Fitzroy down. A dominant defence carried the Ds over the line, winning by 51. And this is really the Ds just going back to what they did. Like they, this is almost the yeah. uh, the the, uh, the early 40s. They're, they're winning the games they need to win. Although the Saints gave them a scare in round 11, uh, but the D's defence was able to hold the Saints to one point in the final quarter and they ran out winners. Uh, against Carlton, they were the better team from the outset but were woefully inaccurate, kicking 5-9 to two points in the first quarter, uh, which left the Blues well within striking distance. Um, and it saw a fighting last quarter. Uh, Melbourne kicked just the second goal of the day into the win to hold off on for a crucial victory. 
Um, I think also helped by the fact that Robert Menzies was watching Carlton in this game. And we know anytime a Prime Minister goes to watch his team, they <laughs> invariably lose. Mm-hmm. It's a curse. Uh, round 14 against Geelong. Who should, who should return for Melbourne to full forward? Jack Mueller. Jack Mueller oh. back in the team. <laughs> kicked five. Great man. As they beat, they, uh, they beat Geelong. And then, if that wasn't enough, he kicked six the following week against the Doggies. Superstar. Eight fingers Mueller. You can't stop him. Came back yeah. with extra fingers. <laughs> the uh, just gun for high. Just bring him in. That's it. Round 18, the Demons were handed a glorified warm-up game to end the home and away season, playing Hawthorne. <laughs> in the first quarter, you guys... I'll just, I'm going to do this slowly, just so you guys can really enjoy and appreciate this. So in the first quarter, Hawthorne failed to fire a shot. <laughs> the, the score at quarter time was Delicious. 51-0. Oh, no. oh, God. I love it. Um, following that, um, on their way to a huge confidence-boosting victory, uh, would have been more savage as well if not for Melbourne's experimentation in the second quarter onwards. Well, fair uh, enough. Rotating different players through the yeah. middle and, and such. <laughs> Uh, they ended up winning this game by 96 points. Yeah, see, we should have been yeah. going for the history books there. I mean, 51 zip at quarter time. We should have won this game by 300 bloody points. Uh, and let's just say the goal kickers for that game, they, they really spread it out. Jack That's Thompson so with four, Eddie Craddock with four, um, Mueller and Rodder with three, a few players with two. So they really they spread the goal kicking out as well. Yeah, nice. thought you'd enjoy that. Um, should be said, we've got to say for the DC, Jack Mueller this year, as you mentioned, the gun for hire, uh, recorded in played in his 216th game, um, which passed Percy Beam's record of 213. So this was the year he retired oh. He's, as our most most games mm. played player. Yeah. Games record holder, nice. Games record holder. And also le- leading on to where, what we were talking about earlier uh, with the with the state uh, carnival, the coach... Yep. Of the Victorian team in a state in the state carnival was Checker Hughes. Yeah, so there you go. All right, coming in second this year was North Melbourne with 13 wins, five losses, and 123.4 as their percentage. Who would have thought it? I know. Continuing second on their way. Place the yeah, two years in a row, top two. To the bonus, yeah, absolutely. They're looking good. I've been I've been so impressed with North Melbourne's build up. You know, the coach working his way through the. Under 19s reserves now seniors yeah. in the team. Like we've seen the team build over the last few years. It's been quite exciting to to read. They haven't. Yeah, they're not just a flash in the pan. They they have been building, haven't they? So it's good to see. Mm. Uh, so uh, coached by Wally Carter again, as you mentioned, this is his uh, fourth year in charge. No, third year in charge of the club. Uh, captained by Les Foot. Yep. Their best and fairest winner was Les Foot as well, and their. Leading goal kicker was Jock Spencer mm. with 86. Indeed. Another debutant was our film film director, uh, Kevin Smith, made his debut in this game as well. Shortly before directing Clerks. Good on him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, now, big news at North Melbourne as well this season. Well done. On the urging of Fonz Tobin, who was very much involved with the club, um, he they changed their name. He hated the nickname The Shinboners. Uh, he wanted a more marketable name, so the club looked at rebranding themselves. Yep. And he wanted something that was uncharacteristic was was characteristically Australian. Mm-hmm. So after seeing a large kangaroo in a city store shop front, I believe he took it back to the club, draped it in the club's colours, and thus they rebranded themselves as the Kangaroos. Whoa, nineteen fifty. Huh. Nice. Yeah. I like that. I feel I feel like um 
the shin bonus could have been like a really great nickname though you know like if they'd carried that on and the mascot could have been like a butcher with a big dripping <laughs> meat cleaver or something it would have been quite, caveman. quite you know scary they could have really <laughs> held on to that but you're right it's a bit strange kangaroos is you don't think they try and hold on to the shin bonus name we hear that all the time yeah, true, true. Anytime they have a hard fall victory or they come from behind, shin boner spirit. But you're right, describing what a shin boner is, is, um, is yeah. Yeah, that's the tricky part. They have just called themselves oh. the butchers. The butchers wow. of Arden Street. Yeah, that'd be cool. Um, so, South North Melbourne had a good win over Richmond in round one by 10 points. They had to come from behind in the last quarter. Round two, they had a disappointing loss to Carlton, uh, and they probably wanted revenge for their loss in the previous year's final. But Jock Spencer had a bit of a day out, kicking nine, which was his biggest haul of goals to date. In round five, North got the better of South Melbourne in the dying minutes. They were trailing South by nine points, and D Condon kicked two late goals to give them a three-point win. The win kicked off a series of seven straight yeah. wins, which, you know, is big for North Melbourne. Um now, round six, probably their biggest win of the year, or probably in their history to this date, um, was the defeat of Essendon in round six, the only team to do so this season. Spoiler alert. Um, this gave their players a bit of satisfaction, having been denied the previous year, losing to Essendon in the prelim. Uh, North won, won this game by 15 points. They came from behind to do this. Confidence building. Uh, and some stats from that game in terms of goal kickers. We had Jock Spencer with six, Les Foot with two, and all the big names firing, D Condon, uh, Kevin Dynan, John Reeves. Um, yeah. Round nine, they won for the first time ever at Victoria Park after having suffered 23 straight defeats there. They, excuse me, they led all day to win by 32 points. Captain Les Foot and Jared Marchese kicking four goals each. Now, round 11, they, they held Hawthorne to just 25 points for the whole day. Um, keeping them scoreless in the first quarter, just like Melbourne did, and allowing them to kick one point in the last quarter. It was an absolute domination. Spencer and Condon were unstoppable in the forward line with four I mean, each. yeah. They came from behind in round 13 to beat Carlton by 10, and by this stage, final series were all but confirmed. Round 16, North scored 21 goals. Round four, round 16, North scored 21 goals, 14, 140 in a 51-point defeat of South. At this time, it would be their biggest score against South, and that would last until 1981. Jock Spencer kicked 11 of the team's 21 goals, becoming the first North Melbourne player to kick a double-digit amount of goals in a game. Uh, and they did drop their final two games of the season, but it didn't Tactical affect resting of players. Typical North. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and top of the ladder, Moz. Top of the ladder. Would you like to say it, Tim? Uh, no, I'd like to hear you say it. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> crafty devil. All right, top of the ladder is Essendon, finishing, as Tim already alluded to, with 17 wins and only one loss, a percentage of 162.2. Huge. From the great men, gotta say it. Uh, captain coached by Dick Reynolds. Uh, best and fairest winner was Bill Hutchison this year. And the leading goal kicker, John Coleman, just inching above his 100 from the year before with 120 <sighs> this season. Yoch. Yeah. Those those three names as well Hutchison, Coleman, Reynolds. Yeah. Big, the big three. Yeah, the big three. Getting the job done 
in fine style. Bill Snell made his debut this season. He was a bit of a journeyman. We'd got him from um, where we got we got him from at Gippsland Way, uh, and he became a really solid player for us. Um, having said that, we lost five players with a combined 577 games of experience. So Wally Buttsworth left, Seth Ruddle, Keith Rawl, Vic Fisher, yes. and Whopper Lane all left. So Rippers. that's a lot of quality players leaving. Yeah. They somehow managed to cover that. Um, and a couple of others um, asking for um, transfers as well and then being rebuffed. Mm. In round one, they took on Fitzroy at Brunswick Street Oval. This was uh, a momentous game for two reasons. One, it was Dick Reynolds' 300th game. Mm. Um, so only the third player in history to play 300. And this was also yeah. the first time they had won at Brunswick Street Oval since 1943. Which is amazing considering how strong um, they've uh, been in that whole time as well. Yeah. So against South in round two, um, who we were now coached by ex-bomber Whopper Lane, the Bombers led all day. And for the first few quarters, Coleman was quite, you know, relatively quiet. He only kicked five goals. Wiley Chambers was doing a good job on him. Mm. Um, and he was playing in front of him all day. But then, look, the floodgates really opened in the last quarter. The Bombers piled on 12 goals. Coleman was in absolutely everything. He kicked six, uh, assisted in six others. And um, the, the team kicked 29 goals, seven for the game. Very accurate by their standards. Ooh. Won by 105 points. Um, however, in this game, Coleman did injure himself. He broke the uh, the Rio joint in his pinky finger. Uh, and from then on in, then on out for the rest of the season, he was wearing a bit of a, bit of a splint on it. Yeah. Uh, but you've got to say the first, uh, that that's, you know, the Bombers really coming to the fore there and showing their, their true mm. might. Yeah. Um, round six in what would be Essendon's only loss for the season, um, umpire Harry Budsell would remember this interaction. If he couldn't knock the ball away, he was punching and con- contacting Coleman's head. After a while, Coleman got a bit upset about this. He took another mark and was going back for his kick. And he said to me, When are you going to report him? He's punching me. I said, Well, you're marking him, aren't you? And you're going back and you're kicking the goals. What else do you want me to do? Jock's a pretty understanding sort of bloke. Next time the ball comes down, why don't you come from behind and knock his head off? Jock, Jock will cop it sweet because he'll reckon it was only um, he'll reckon it was only to be one of the even uppers. Oh yeah, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's uh, such good banter from an umpire. Yeah, I guess it's fair. How's that an umpire telling the player to? to... Yeah, I love it. You, you're in the forward line there. You have to talk like that to the. <laughs> the umpire telling you to hit him. Anyway. If, an, if an umpire's telling you it's okay, then it's okay. Yeah, surely. Just give him a crack. <laughs> uh, round seven against St Kilda fullback Bruce Phillips. Uh, he remembers letting Coleman run out and away from goal and choosing to stay back and defend. So Coleman was out past the 50. At one, one point, Coleman marked it about 70 out and Phillips thought, well, that's good. It's too far. Next thing he knows, Coleman puts through the high diddle diddle, a goal from 70. Um, he would boot eight goals for the day. The Bombers winning by 10. Huge. Mm. That's very unlike uh, very yeah. unlike Coleman, though, Being a, kicking it from that far out. He wasn't known for that. It wasn't a huge kick. Uh, not particularly, but I think Just he had a bit of it. ego. And, yeah. I mean, he was no Laurie Nash. Yeah. No. Round 10 against Melbourne and on Demon Crack fullback and captain Shane McGrath. Coleman was double teamed all day but Pretty still good. managed to kick seven in a nine-point win. 
Um, and as a result of being named player of the match, he was awarded a traveling case and a night at the theater. Fantastic. I wonder if you'll see the Baron. Now. <laughs> Great. Possibly. <laughs> Uh, round 12, Dick Reynolds played his 311th match against Fitzroy, breaking the game's record held by Jack Dyer for just over a season. Um, although we know his numbers yeah. have been adjusted since. Um, and this is one of the motivating factors that Reynolds kept playing for. He wanted to get that game's record. So uh, he is, as of this stage, he's the game's record holder uh-huh. for the BFL. And it will be go. until the 70s, I believe. Essendon won this by 28, Coleman with four. In the round 17 win over North Melbourne, Coleman kicked his 100th goal for the season in mm. the second season in a row. Uh, this one actually in season, though, not having not including finals. Uh, and they prepared for finals in spectacular fashion, smashing St Kilda by 81. Coleman with 10, um, although unbeknownst to anyone, he'd actually broken his finger in this Absolutely. game as well, and we'll talk a bit more about that. Um, but would you like a breakdown of Coleman's goals for the season? Yeah, that'd be great. All right. So he kicked 4, 11, 5, 8, 5, 5, 8, 5, 6, 7, 10, 4, 6, 3, 8, 7, 10. Mm-hmm. Two three. Fingers. He must have been sick that day. Kick three against the doggies. And he missed the match as well. Yes. Yeah. Huge. So he kicked he 120. Match, yeah, 120 across Didn't the drop that finals. Yeah. yeah. The proper season. Massive. Massive. All right, so the 1950 Sporting Life magazine Team of the Year is as follows. In the back line, we have Port Adelaide's Dick Russell, Essendon's Bill Brittingham, and Perth's Merv McIntosh. Halfbacks are Footscray's Charlie Sutton, Richmond's Don Fraser, and Collingwood's Gordon Hocking. In the centre, there's Carlton's Arthur Hodgson, West Torrens' Bob Hank, and Norwood's Doug Olds. The half forwards are Geelong's Bob Davis, Geelong's Fred Flanagan and Melbourne's Len Dockett. The full forwards are Norwood's John Marriott, Essendon's John Coleman and Port Adelaide's Foz Williams. And the followers are Richmond's Bill Morris, Brunswick's Jack Whelan and Essendon's Bill Hutchison. That's, um, it surprises me there's no, there's no North Melbourne players there and they finished second. I would have, I would have thought that Les Foote would have been in that, in yeah. that side for sure. Speaking of North Melbourne, yeah. As a, just a Ford pocket. Yeah. Interesting. And no Brownlow medalist from this year either. Ooh. Correct, yeah. Which gets me to the next part. The Brownlow Downlow with Moz. So the Brownlow medalist this year was Alan Baron Ruthven. Uh, the Baron. From Fitzroy, yeah, the Baron. The so the Baron finished on 21 votes. Uh, Fred Flanagan from Geelong finished on 18 votes. And finishing on... 17 votes, or 16, depending on my handwriting here, were Footscray's Charlie Sutton, Richmond's Bill Morris, and St Kilda's Bruce Phillips. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Alan Baron Ruthven um, was held in such high esteem when he came from Ivanhoe to Fitzroy that he was given Hayden Bunting's number on his Guernsey, number seven. He was nicknamed Baron for his dapper dress sense, often seen in flamboyant suits. <laughs> he was known for his unbelievably consistent stamina and would rove for entire games. It was often joked that the second rover had very little to do during the game. Uh, Baron played for Fitzroy from 1940. He started with six games in 1940. And then for the few years after that, he played a few games here and there. I don't think he played at all in the 1942 season. And then he was back 
Uh, he played until 1954 after captain coaching for three years. He kicked 47 goals in 1950, which was the third, he came third in the goal kicker tally. And he averaged two goals a game for his career, a total of 442 goals. And for a rover, that is pretty bloody good. Yeah. 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 Oh, what a man. He's perfect, isn't he? Yeah. And he's tapped off that long yeah. career with a Brownlow. He's, there's nothing he can't <laughs> And do. I'll tell you what, Norm Smith would be bloody happy with that as well as the uh, coach. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What a treasure. Let's get to finals, Kaz. And finals. Uh, yes. Takes us to the second semi of, yeah, Melbourne Geelong. Um, so played in front of 54,817 people at the MCG. Uh, Melbourne came out strong. Yeah. But... Uh, look, what happened? There, a big flock of Cats fans travel up the highway to see their team. Um, perhaps embarking on a golden age, they knew something special was happening at Geelong. Um, but this game was called one of the worst performances that the Demons had ever put on in a finals match. In wet conditions, nothing was going right for Melbourne against a side who hadn't played finals in 10 years. Um, during the first quarter, Shane McGrath lined up Bobby Davis. <laughs> oh, no. Instead of collecting him, he collected his teammate, Jeff Collins. <laughs> Bob McKenzie broke his toe. Um, Bob McKenzie broke his toe, later collided with Billy Deans. McGrath bruised his elbow, and Colin suffered a broken jaw when McGrath ran through him. So this is just an absolute disaster. Um, For the Cats, Gonyon kicked six, Lynch three, and the Cats' defence just shut down the Demons at every occasion with Hyde, Scott, Morrow, Smith, and Morrison all in great form. Final scores, Charlie? Final scores were 6 8 44 for Melbourne to Geelong's 13-10-88. Doubled us there, unfortunately. We've got the uh, the first semi-final was very uh, well-anticipated match between Essendon and North Melbourne. One uh, one win apiece this year so far. Uh, So, uh, it looked like it was going to be all Essendon's way in front of 75,000... 433 people, Timmy. Yeah, well, you know what North Melbourne did? They did a Trent Cochin. They won the toss and decided to kick against the breeze that was blowing. Mm, so they have it in the end. Yes. Uh, so this saw Essendon soar to a 32-point lead at quarter time, 5-5 five, five to three points. But to North's credit, they worked their way back into the game using the breed in the second to add five goals to Essendon's one. So halftime, it was only a seven-point lead, and the match was much closer and slower in the second half. A lot more contests, a lot more stoppages. Oh, no. The Bombers were clinging to the lead. Um, then rain began to fall, and the wind kind of shifted its direction as well. And North took mm-hmm. the lead. There was there, there was about th- yep. I think it was three points in it. Not much time left, and uh, this, is, this is where we take up the action. So Coleman took a spectacular diving mark, but he missed his shot. Uh, and then he went down in a pack and was kicked in the head. Not great. Um, from the free kick he got from that, he missed again. There was 30 seconds left. Essendon trailed by three. The ball was alive in Essendon's uh, forward 50. Uh, McCorkle of North scooped the ball back into play instead of instead of letting it roll out of bounds. Uh, Coleman saw this, grabbed the ball, and quickly passed to Ron McEwen in the goal, sh- goal square. Shades of uh, Gary Ablett in 1994. Kicking a goal... That gave Essendon a pass to the grand final, a three-point win. He kept it in. See? Yes, a very close, very close game there. Absolutely. Uh, so Essendon winning by three points, uh, getting the week off, and going straight through. Uh, which, yeah, so sure, we should say yeah. So Essendon's eleven fourteen eighty, just pipping at North Melbourne's eleven eleven seventy seven. 
huge there, which takes us to the prelim. So, yeah, as you said, Essendon get the week off and North Melbourne have to come back and fight it out against Geelong. Uh, so in front of 73,530 people at the G, uh, another, good, another good close game. Unfortunately, the only terrible final was the Melbourne Geelong one. It was. Now, yeah. Um, now, something unbeknownst to people at the time, and I read about this in Bobby Davis's autobiography, was that he crashed his car during the week. <laughs> he, he had a Riley Pathfinder and crashed it into an embankment in Torquay, uh, but didn't tell anyone about it. So went into the game, maybe not 100%. Um, so watching the game, watching on with this game was Peter Burns, a Geelong great, who was 85 years old at this stage. Oh, yeah. Um, and look, the start of the game, as a Geelong supporter, you would have been very happy. They absolutely outclassed the Kangaroos, kicking seven goals, three to one goal. Um, so because of this, Wally Carter had to make some wholesale changes uh, to bring his team back into the game, which they did. They kicked three goals to Geelong's one, and they only trailed by 20 points at half time. But in the second half, the Cats held sway, but only just. It was really the last quarter where the Roos ran all over the Cats, a blistering 10 minutes saw them kick four goals and take the lead. The key move was the switch of Les foot to the forward pocket, which allowed Jock Spencer to come back into the game. He kicked five and Marchese and Rob with three each. This was North Melbourne's first finals win. And in the paper during the week, Percy Beams wrote the following. Yes. The fanatical spirit of players who give all they have for the club and the refusal of the team to acknowledge the impossibility of any football task that has given North Melbourne the chance at winning its first nice. league premiership. So, yeah. So, Percy, very, very up and about for North <laughs> Melbourne at this stage. As most of Melbourne were. This is what North had been doing all year, though. They'd often let teams get out to a lead and then they'd scrap and fight it back and, and win it back. They didn't. They never gave up in any game. So, yeah. yeah good way to win. They were desperate. And you talk about Percy Beams being behind North Melbourne. Most of the city of Melbourne were behind North as well. If you weren't an Essendon supporter... Everyone was going for North. And you can kind of understand that, right? Essendon's made oh, three flags since 46. Yeah. North Melbourne are, are, haven't made, haven't won a final, you know? Well, they have now. So it's, ex, it's, 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 it's exciting. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's that tall poppy syndrome that we're, mm. we're all about in Australia. It's barricade for the oh, underdog absolutely. at all times. Yeah. Yep. Yes, so as we said, North Melbourne running out winners there by 17 points after being down by six goals, uh, more than six goals after the first quarter. So huge uh, comeback there. So it gets us to the grand final. For them, yeah, which brings us to the grand final. And one of the great things about this grand final is, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you did, Charlie, but Kaz and I, have uh, we've watched some of the footage of this grand final, which is on YouTube. I have, yes. So basically, mm-hmm. from, from now mm-hmm. on, you, you can watch mm-hmm. highlights of all the grand finals on YouTube, can't you? The glories of the internet. Absolutely. Um, one, the one thing I found really fascinating mm. was the massive crowd were all ushered onto the ground. A lot of them were on the ground and they're sitting centimetres from the boundary it line. Seems like they're very lucky to be there. They're sort of, they've got their spot oh, and they're yeah? just watching. That's it. <laughs> you know, in, in a sort of like a very tame way. Yes. Um, you see lots of drop punts, especially um, Bill Brittingham of Essendon, their full back. Um, he does these big... Uh, drop kicks out of full back halfway down the ground. They're great yeah. to watch. Drop ki- drop kicks or drop drop punts? Hang on, I'm a bit, bit confused there. Drop drop kick. Drop kick, so he's hitting the ground. Yep. Yeah, yep. wow. Yep. He's absolutely booming him down 
he's booming him into the center from full back as well. It looks great to watch. There's not many people who are who are doing Real those stuff. in 1950. So that's that's fascinating. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, each contest. Mm. Um, it, it's really it's really awesome to watch because it's sort of like in slow motion as like you see who's going to jostle for position. There's no sort of cherry picking and, and no crashing in. There's you can actually see the contest because there's no, not so many numbers. There's no there, lines on right. the ground. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy. No center square. And so you don't know you don't know where on the ground they are. And then it, like the center bounces, there can be up to eight players from each team in there. There's no restrictions on numbers. That's it's so weird thinking you know how things have just changed yep. a little bit over time, isn't it? Absolutely. Hmm. And so the stage is set. Just on 100,000 people are ready to witness the 1950 Grand Final. So big as the crowd, they're on the oval. Just you watch them. They're sandwiched between the fence and the boundary line. Finally, through the streamers, patted with the club's colours, the teams break through as they run out onto the mighty Melbourne Arena. Firstly, Essendon. And now North Melbourne, led by Captain Les Foote. The coach of the North Melbourne team, Wally Carter. Two years in a row, Dick. Lovely to be speaking again. Thanks, guys. Lovely to be with you again. Well, we've got to say, now with a flag in 46, grand finals in 47 and 48, and now two flags in 49 and today, you are the dominant club of the competition and have been for at least half a decade. How does it feel to be the man at the forefront of all that? Gosh, when you put it like that, it sounds astounding. We've been very proud of the performances all these years and just feel like we should have won those other two as well. Uh, But seriously, the pressure was on us all this year. We knew it from the outside and we agree with it from the inside. We had the team to get the job done and look, we did. We pulled it together. Speaking of your team though, you had a few big names leave. Well, Buttsworth, Whopper Lane, Keith Rawl and Vic Fisher. Uh, All part of at least one of those premierships headed off for different opportunities. So how did you cover those losses? Well, truly, we had the depth. Uh, our seconds and even third sides uh, had very strong years all year. Uh, very strong teams, actually. And we were lucky that some of those guys could come in and, and meet the demands that the VFL and our side would have of them. Uh, now, back to the beginning of the year, we must say a huge congratulations to you for playing your 300th game in round one. Um, just the third player to do this in the league. Amazing. How did you do it? Now, thank you very much. Uh, as I said at the time, it does make you realise that this game is greater than any single man. Yeah, and the season just kept going strong from there for you guys, didn't it? A 105-point winner the next week while celebrating the unfurling of last year's pennant. And uh, then it just continued uh, what looked like the, on what looked like the same game plan from last year. Is that what you intended? Uh, well, of course, we intend to keep winning. <laughs> but I assume you mean with the game plan. Yeah, Yes, we wanted to maintain possession like we did last year and move the ball quickly. Uh, we definitely benefited from our accuracy as well. Uh, no small thanks goes to Coleman for that. He was even better than last year, wasn't he, Dick? Truly an unbelievable talent, guys. He not only kept kicking bags himself, but uh, this year he was even better at giving away opportunities in front of goal. <laughs> The only team that seemed to stand in your way was North Melbourne in round six and Les Foot. Yes, they looked very strong, very determined and had a bit of extra weight on us. Uh, it was obvious even then that they were definitely uh, a team on the rise. Uh, and those under, other comfortable wins just kept on going, uh, cementing your position as, a pre- as premiership favourites, they did. 
Well, we were used to that in the papers by this stage, so it didn't really worry us too much. We just concentrated on the game at hand. And what about the player payment stick? Uh, did that distract anyone? Look, it's, it's something that needs to be looked at again. The rules are 20 years old, but um, I assume you're talking about Coleman's interview? Uh, yeah, he wasn't talking about himself, uh, but of his players in general, and it didn't distract us uh, from the game, nor he from his. So, moving into finals, and after a tight game in round 17, it was pretty clear to the public that North was going to be the team to bring it to you. Did it feel the same for you guys inside the club? We weren't cocky. Uh, always played hard against the team in front of us. But yes, we looked at them as a team between us and the flag. They'd caught us off guard in round six, uh, as you know. And then their final quarter in round 17, they almost pulled in a 37-point lead. And look, that really got us to thinking. And so then you guys met in the second semi for the third time this year. And it seemed like you'd make short work of them, uh, leaving them goalless and taking a 32-point lead into that first break. Yes, it was a dream start, uh, and the fact they chose to kick into the wind definitely helped us with that. Uh, we knew the wind was going to make a difference, and that told, you know, when they came back and cut the lead to seven by half time. Look, it was a it was a close game after that. And what about that mark of yours in the goal square that didn't get paid? Well, not too much to say about that one. Uh, luckily, McEwen managed to snap one in the dying minutes and get one for us. What a great game it was to watch, Dick. Uh, North play a great style of football. Lovely to watch. Yes, and very hard to play against. Did you feel that maybe, uh, even though you guys were the favourites, people outside the club may have had a bit of a soft spot for North? Oh, absolutely. We're a great team that's been flying well for a while now, and it's, it's always good to see a struggling side find their way, but we didn't hold a soft spot for them here at our club. <laughs> of course not. So then with North dispatching of Geelong in the prelim, it was the grand final that everyone knew it would be. How did you feel running out onto the ground this afternoon? Oh, it was chaos down on the ground and, and McClure almost couldn't get in after they shut the gates. Uh, a bit like Jackie Jones last year. Um, yes, he left his match ticket at home. Yes, it, you're right. It was a bit of a mad rush. Uh, there are a few injuries and apparently 5,000 people left on the ground, uh, people out on the ground at one stage. Really? Well, uh, we stayed away from that and uh, just got ready for the game. Umpire McMurray bounces the ball and Essendon Ruckman Bob McClure secures the knockout, which is intercepted by North Melbourne's captain Les Foot. He gets yeah, the well, first I kick mean, of the you game. boys came out strong with a great long kick from you, allowing uh, Johnny Coleman to kick that opening goal, and then your boys managed to kick the next four after that as well. Uh, do you reckon North maybe were overawed a bit by the occasion? It was a huge crowd and very enthusiastic, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, we'd obviously been there before, and it seemed like they were concentrating on us rather than the ball for a bit. Look, and that, that allowed us to get a bit of a breathing room while they settled their nerves a bit, I think. But settle they did and managed to kick a few before the bell, leaving you with a nice 21-point lead. Tell us about the second quarter, though, Dick. Your bombers were uncharacteristically wasteful. Yes, we weren't playing as cleanly as we usually did, uh, but that was a testament to North's scrappiness and determination. They kicked the goal. They kicked the one and only goal of that quarter, I think. Uh, that's right, Dick. Giving you a 13-point lead at the long break. What did you do at halftime to try and wrestle back the momentum? Well, we swapped Snell, who'd been brilliant all year, uh, for Ted Lahane, who'd played so well and matched up beautifully with Coleman. I, th I thought it might be just the thing we needed to keep the pressure on North. Ah, uh, but then Spencer managed another as the rain started coming, and then that lead was back to just uh, just over a couple of goals. Um, it seemed really tight in there, but um. Then Coleman managed that huge 60-metre kick for that goal. Uh, have you ever seen anything like it? Not from John, no. I, I think he surprised even himself. He's never kicked further than 55 before. 
After that, the tide seemed to turn well in your favour, Dick, and North didn't kick another goal for the game. When did you feel like you had it won? Uh, look, honestly, knowing the sort of scrappy team that North had been all year and having seen them come back from worse, I'd never got ahead of myself and made sure the others didn't either. When that final siren went, we were all overjoyed. Chris Lambert punches the ball onto McEwen as the final siren sounds with victory to Essendon. It's a grand sight. The crowd runs wild. Can you blame her? Vice-Captain Hutchison runs up to embrace his skipper, Dick Reynolds. The crowd wells around this great skipper, and the players, you'll notice shortly, carry him shoulder high from the ground. This is a magnificent sight. And then your teammates cheered you off the ground, Dick. Uh, that was a great tribute from a team you have given so much to. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, it's always been my greatest pleasure to play with the Essendon Football Club ever since I was a 17-year-old. Uh, I'm just glad I could do my part today. Um, now, Dick, you, you've announced your retirement just before the finals, but surely tell us, this isn't true, is it? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, look, Percy Taylor did announce it uh, in the papers earlier on this month, uh, yeah. Uh, and look, I, I've always said, you know, you should give it away before 36. You, should, you shouldn't be playing football at 36. Um, I want to go out on top. Uh, so today's the, just the perfect way to end a, a, a brilliant career, 17 years at the football club. And speaking of parts, uh, while, we all, while we know all year you guys have been such an even team, uh, who would you say was best on ground today? Again, as always, it was a team effort, and it's hard not to mention Coleman with his four goals. But look, Norm McDonald was brilliant for us today, uh, so I'd have to say him. But, you know, also, if I was going to talk about North Melbourne for a minute, Les Foote must be congratulated for his inspiring leadership, tireless play, and, and look, he almost single-handedly lifted his side. I regard Foote as North's best player, uh, and that display, together with his two performances in the other finals, really stamps him as the outstanding player of this final series. Thanks, Dick, and congratulations again. Thanks, all. All right, great to hear there from uh, the great Dick Reynolds again. Um, I can't get enough of the man. I hope we get to talk to him a few more times. Yeah. Um, so, a bit of... Stats from that game. So goals for Essendon. We got Coleman with four, Reynolds two, Syme two, Dale Harper, Hutchie, McEwen, and Snell with one. For North, we got Spencer with three, Rob with two, and Brooker and Dynan with one each. Essendon's best, as we heard, Norm McDonald best on ground there. Dick Reynolds, May McClure, Syme, and Gardner. Um, also in 1950, Essendon became the first team to win the Seniors, Reserves, and Under 19s Premiership. The Reserves beating Melbourne by. Yes, the three, the triple yeah, crown. Essendon, so Essendon beat North Melbourne in the reserves as well, uh, 12-8 to 8-7. And, I mean, a bit of a North Melbourne flavour in the under-19s. They played Carlton but played at Arden Street, that grand final, so they won by a point ah. in that as well. So all three teams winning. What a big celebration that would be. Isn't it interesting to, you know, gen and generally it has been that way the last few years that uh, I, the premiership team has either been in or won the grand final of the seconds as well. It just goes to show how important depth is. Um, I mean, still to this day, but in, in these times, these times as well, how how much you can't rely on your stars. It's about the you know the the bottom six players that make the big difference, right? Absolutely. Um, so retirees for nineteen fifty, a few big ones at Melbourne, boys. Uh, Jack Mueller, two hundred and sixteen games, as you said, three hundred and seventy-eight games, four flags. Don Cordner, 
166 games, 23 mm-hmm. goals, 23 goals, two flags, premiership captain, Brownlow medalist. One of the Elby very Rutter, unsung 131 heroes. 31 games, 142 goals, three flags. Norm yep. Smith, 227 games. I'll be right, yep. Uh, Norm Smith, 227 games, 572 goals, four premierships. Yeah. Alec Alberston, only lasted that one season. We, we should say he played at North Melbourne as well that last season. 177 games, 389 goals. Arthur Oliver, who I feel like has been around forever, and Footscray, 272 games, 354 goals. Lindsay White, Geelong and South Melbourne, 142 games, 540 goals, two-time league goal-kicking leader. Uh, one of only four players to have done that at two clubs. Fonz Kine, yeah. officially retiring at the end of the season, 245 games, 237 goals, two flags, uh, and you know he's the captain and coach at Collingwood, we knew that. Ken Baxter, 153 games, 365 goals, three flags. Jim Baird, 130 games, two flags for Carlton. Uh, and Alf Sawyer, umpire, 105 mm. games, six grand, six finals, one grand final. Um, you'll <laughs> notice I didn't read Dick Reynolds' name out there either. Ah, uh, yes, yes, I did. Mm. Interesting. All right. Well, let's uh, let us wrap up the year that was, boys. Yeah. So, Timmy, you lead us off. Who won the premiership in 1950? Bombers, Essendon, back to back. Their th- just the Bombers' third back to back win as well. So the third time we've gone back to back. Yeah. Not the last either. Uh, not quite three in a row, though. Not quite three in a row twice. So, not a big deal. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, who won the second premiership, Timmy? Essendon. Who won the third premiership, Timmy? Essendon. Great year. <laughs> uh, who was the leading goal kicker this year? Uh, it was John Coleman in both the. Uh, home and away and including finals. So 112 for the season, 120 mm. all up for the year. Huge. The Brownlow medal, Charlie? The Baron, Alan Ruthven of Fitzroy with 21 votes. Who took the wooden spoon this year, Kaz? We have Hawthorne with, unfortunately, zero wins. Premiership tallies as of 1950. Historical. We've got Collingwood with 11. Essendon on 10, double digits. Carlton on eight, Fitzroy eight, Melbourne six, Richmond five, Geelong three, South Melbourne three. Uh, we've got the Bombers taking out the Bombers taking out the highest score, the um, Coulthard Shield hundred. Very impressive. Twenty nine goal seven, hundred eighty one. Kaz, um, the McCracken Award. Everyone's everyone wants to know. <laughs> so we talk- the list is here for us. Uh, does Alan Tyne retain or hear your nominations? Alan Nash, Doug Lamb, Ernie Collahole, Urban Dunyam, Bob Trainer, Gray Seaburn, Bruce Bugsy Combin, Bernie Smallwood, Doug Guy, Harry Painter, Tharold Merritt, Neil Ratsu, Keith McKee, Jack Hiscock, Con O'Toole or Bill Snell. I'm just imagining yelling Ratsu from the pocket there, you know, when you don't go right behind the goals. But we're giving it this week to Urban Dunyam. I don't know. <laughs> Dunyam. <laughs> Good one there. Yeah, Urban as well, the awesome. first name. All right. Well, that, that's a, that's a show, boys. That's the Yeah, so there we go. So we're, we're into the 50s. It's all happening. And, uh, you know, mm. we're into yeah. we're into not so, re- not so distant history now, which is exciting. The- the names um, we're, we're, we're about to start saying are absolute champions of the game as well. 
Absolutely. And we're starting to, to talk about things that people may actually have memories of, which yeah. is, you know, that people yeah. will actually remember these times. So yeah. please, if you listen yeah, and uh, you've got any anecdotes about different games or things that you remember from these times, please let us know. We'd love to add some of that sort of stuff into our episode. That'd be amazing. Some That's the, you know, that's the stuff that makes that makes this come alive is the stories about the time, not the stats. So uh, please, please do. Um <laughs> And looking forward to, to 1951. Not, not as much as 1950, but yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a great time. No. Well, not for you. <laughs> not for you. I'm just looking forward to it because it's getting us closer to 50, uh, 55. Yeah. <laughs> and six. Yeah. Um, so, guys, lovely to, lovely to be doing this again. And, uh, we definitely we'll, enjoyed doing we'll it. Speak, we'll speak again soon and, and hopefully everyone at home has enjoyed listening and We'll listen again for 51. Yes. Uh, so yes. We'll, we'll hand over to uh, to Big Red for the roundup here. And uh, until next time, hooroo. Big Red's local footy roundup for your state and suburban football action, sinking our teeth into grassroots football. G'day, kick team. Welcome to the roundup for the 1950 season of football from around this great country. First, we take a look at the sandful where in the 71st season of competition, we have Norwood Redlegs winning their 22nd club premiership and firming as one of the most successful football clubs in Australian football. The final match of the season was played in front of a season-high total of 15,500 fans, and they witnessed Norwood take on Glenelg in a game that was over by three-quarter time. The final scores for the game were 15-16-106 to 8 11 59. The Ken Farmer Award for the Sample leading goal kicker was won by Colin Churchett for the third season in a row, uh, completing the feat by kicking his own personal best of 105 goals for the season. It was the first time in over 10 seasons that a Sample player had topped the 100-goal mark for the season. The McGarry Medal in, for the 1950 season was won by Ian McKay from North Adelaide. McKay was the full-back and the, only, and the first full-back in Sample history to win the award. McKay debuted in 1946 and made state selection in his very first season. While playing for the South Australia in the state carnival, he was awarded the best player on the ground in a game against the Big V. When John Coleman started playing for the Big V, it was said that McKay was the only player in the country capable of keeping the star forward under some sort of control. Coleman only averaged 2.5 goals a game when McKay was his direct opponent and an amazing 5.5 goals a game throughout his entire career against everyone else. By 1949, McKay was the captain of North Adelaide and led them to their first premiership in 18 seasons. The 1950 McGarry Medal was his only major award, but McKay was impressively named as the North Adelaide captain of their team of the century side uh, in the year 2000. Over in the Waffle, with a head into the, their 66th season of competition, and with only two losses for the season, South Fremantle have gone on and beaten Perth by six points to secure their sixth, excuse me, their fifth club premiership. South Fremantle are currently uh, in the middle of a 15-year dynasty, and the 1950 Waffle flag was the club's third win in the last four seasons. The 1950 Grand Final wasn't without its hiccups as South Fremantle had 11 more scoring shots in the game but were so inaccurate and were very lucky to even end up with the win in that game at all. The final scores for the game were South, South's 12-23-95 to Perth's 13-11-89 and the game was played in front of 31,000 fans at the Subiaco Oval who were there to witness the clash. 
The game really could have gone either way as Perth held a three-goal lead at quarter time before South came back in the second quarter with 14 scoring shots but only managing five majors. In the second half, Perth came out blazing with 14 scoring shots of their own but again only managing five majors. The fourth quarter tightened up a lot. Souths managed to sneak one extra goal through to grab the win. The leading waffle goal kicker for the season was Ron Tucker from Perth with 115 goals for the season. Tucker had been the leading goal kicker for Perth in the previous five seasons, so he was already known as quite a prolific goal kicker. Tucker played at full forward, centre-half forward, and as a rover, and from all, all reports was a tremendous athlete. Tucker consistently represented Western Australia in the interstate carnivals over a five-season period, playing at centre-half forward, as the great Bernie Naylor was always a walk-up start at full forward. Ron Tucker is often mentioned in Western Australian football alongside Bernie Naylor and uh, the great John Coleman as some of the greatest goal-kicking forwards our country has seen. The Sandover medal was tied in the 1950 waffle season between Frank Allen and Jim Conway from East Perth and East Fremantle, respectively. Both players had similar careers, achieving premiership success, club best and fairest, and represented Western Australia at state football across the same five seasons. Interestingly, they both played a similar amount of games for their clubs and both retired after the 1956 season. So a few similarities there. Over in the VFA and in the 69th season of competition, the premiership was won by the Oakley Football Club after a runners-up result in 1949 and having gone without a premiership for the last 20 seasons. The grand final was played between Oakley and Port Melbourne, who were the two standout teams for the season, but Port had already fallen to Oakley twice throughout the season and again were under Oakley's control on grand final day. Oakley's win wasn't without a struggle, mind you, as both teams went to the main break with the scores level. The third quarter saw Oakley kick six goals to Port's one to get a commanding lead, which was lucky because Oakley were held scoreless in the final quarter. They only conceded two goals themselves, however, and managed to hold on for a 19-point win. The final scores for the game were 13-9-87 to 9-14-68 in a game that was played at the St Kilda Cricket Ground in front of 38,000 fans. The association's leading goal kicker was won by the smooth-kicking Johnny Walker from Williamstown, who kicked 66 goals in the home and away season and 71 goals overall. The 1950 J.J. Liston medal for the association's best player was won by Frank Stubbs from Camberwell, who polled 38 votes. Stubbs was Camberwell's first ever winner of the league award. He also played seven seasons at North Melbourne in the VFL, and in 1940 was the highest polling North player in the Brownlow medal. Stubbs was a talented ruckman and recently gained recognition by being named as the first ruck in Camberwell's team of the century. Over in the VAFA, Ormond have won their first ever premiership in the top division. The 1950 grand final between Ormond and University Blacks will go down as one of the most thrilling VAFA grand finals in history and was reported at the time as being a case of daylight robbery. University Blacks were the dominant team of the era and were searching for a record seventh straight premiership. They'd started their run in 1938, and if not for the six years suspension of play between 1940 and 1945 due to World War II, they would likely have stamped their authority on the competition and claimed more premiership wins. Alternatively, Ormond was yet to win at the highest level since their inception in 1932. Ormond had fell off or fell away in four grand finals and were unsuccessful in each encounter, losing three to the University Blacks and one against Collegians. 
1950, however, Allman would achieve their first ever uh, A-section flag when simult- while simultaneously ending the Blacks' dynasty with a kick after the final siren. Next up, I have a little section from the VAFA uh, page as quoted by an Orman player, Orman player at the time. <clears throat> we lost our captain and with, with injury, another player with injury, and just before three-quarter time, I rolled my ankle. And due to this injury, his team needed him to play out the game. Uh, Orman's coach at the time um, made a significant change in the final term and moved this player from centre-half forward uh, to defence um, with just one directive. Used the Elstomic wind, which had changed directions and was in Orman's favour, and kicked the ball as far as he could. And this move by the coach would prove to be inspired. Orman were trailing by two points in the final minute of the match when I took an uncontested mark across half-back, played on and ran my full distance before thumping a torpedo into Orman's forward line. The wind gave the ball an extra few metres and fell straight into the arms of our rover, Jack Boland, who was 40 yards out on a 45-degree angle. The final siren sounded. We ran up to him and went, Jack, Jack, the siren's gone, we all said. Anyway... Jack tucked the ball under his arm and went back and said, I heard the effing thing. So I thought to myself, oh, that's a good sign. Boland wasted no time with his run-up, unhesitatingly booting the ball through the big post and gave Orman a four-point win and victory in its first ever A-section premiership. The club would go on to win eight more premierships, including four in a row from 1987 to 1990. So very impressive there. And finally, we have Woodside Football Club getting four in a row in the Alberton Football League and North Launceston winning their fifth premiership in a row down in Tassie. Something else extremely crazy is that throughout history, North Launceston have completed a five-peat on three separate occasions, once through the 40s, again through the 70s, and over the most recent five seasons down in Tassie. So if you've been lucky enough to be down in Tasmania and have witnessed North Launceston play, I'm sure they are very impressive. What a massive achievement. Anyway, with that, we wrap up the 1950 season from around the grounds. Until next time, kick straight. To find out more about the Kick to Kick team and the sources we use, visit our website, www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kicktokickpod. Thanks so much for listening.